Welcome to Plant Stories. The modern, the old, and the crazy in between. Fun fact, sake is drunk in like a bajillion different kinds of containers. Let me tell you about the top three most common. The tokuri is a jug mostly used to pour. Next is the choco, which is a small cup used to drink. It usually comes in a cute pair with the jug. And then finally is the sakazuki, which is a shallow cup that comes in different sizes. Some of them as big as a plate, and some of them are little bitty 15 centimeters. And it's usually for formal places, such as banquets or a New Year's celebration. And that brings us into today's episode, sake. Ah. Yes, I'm drinking sake right now. Sake. <laughs> it's um, it's nice. It's like mellow. You know, it's a little fruity. Um, yeah, mine started out hot, but it's not so hot anymore. But it's actually still pretty good. I might even like it more now. I don't know. I haven't decided. I also have sake's BFF soju. And I'm drinking mm-hmm. it in tandem with the sake, so I don't know how I'm going to be by the end of this episode, guys, but, you know. Just sauced. <laughs> I can thoroughly say that I'm enjoying both, so. Nice. In case you're wondering, both delicious, great options. So, you know, let's get into it. You know, what mm-hmm. is sake? Sake is defined by Merriam-Webster as a Japanese alcoholic drink typically made from fermented rice that is traditionally drunk warm and from a small porcelain cup. Clearly, from what Krista just said, that's not necessarily 100% true, but I think traditionally to Americans, this is what they view as sake. I would believe Mm -hmm. that in the English-speaking world, maybe that's the definition. What is it in other worlds? The word sake in Japanese just refers to like any alcoholic drink. Hmm. And so while we specifically call this kind of like fermented rice wine, I guess, uh, although I don't necessarily think it's wine, um, we would call that sake. The Japanese actually call it Nihonshu. I mean, it basically means Japanese drink, but there's a little bit of a disconnect there. Um, And these kinds of like rice fermented drinks have been available in asian culture for a very long time so it's likely that sake or some similar drink appeared after wet rice cultivation in the third century bce and the first actual mention of sake is in the third century a.d Uh, and then the first mention of its kind of like widespread production is in the 8th century AD. So, 
you know, it might not be the same thing that the process has been for perfected to for today, because a lot of the things that they do today uh, are still things that they did hundreds of years ago, just maybe like with some mechanical processes, but a lot of the process is the same. So these very early ones, you know, they might not have been made exactly the same way, but they were probably made pretty similarly. Um, from the 8th to the 10th centuries, production of sake, uh, specifically in Japan, was primarily a government monopoly. Uh, they were primarily the ones who were benefiting and running the sale of this alcohol. Uh, and then kind of in the 10th century, uh, more large temples and shrines really started to take on production of the beverage. And by the 12th century, this actually further advanced to the general population. And so for a little while, there was kind of this big boom of sake making. And uh, it lasted for a little bit, but then it kind of faded somewhat because the government started taxing a lot of these places that were making sake and you know it was like there was a big boom and then there was all this taxing going on and things kind of like greatly changed and you know people couldn't afford to make sake at home for a little while and it took until like the 16th century for things to even out at that point the process of sake making kind of had a rhythm to it uh, people weren't necessarily being over or under taxed although i guess you could argue there's always a point where we're being over or under taxed but you know <laughs> mm -hmm. um and i mean there was a short period of time during the Meiji Restoration, which was in uh, from 1868 to 1912, where laws did permit anyone who had the resources and time to make their own sake. So there was like also a short period then where it kind of came back, you know, people were able to make it at home, but then the taxing thing kind of came into play again. You know how taxes are just always deeply affecting the history of alcohol <laughs> oh yeah and so sake is considered a drink of the kami or gods in the japanese shinto religion and is often used as offerings and you know drunk drank by the general population i don't know why I remember which of those words is appropriate <laughs> but you know Getting people drunk. have it People have it at festivals. Uh, and, you know, a big part of this, too, is that many years earlier when those kind of similar to like monks, you know, making beer, if you've got, you know, this group of people making this beverage, it kind of ends up becoming, I think, associated a little bit with religion and religious ceremonies. And if it's important to your culture, then it also means it's an important offering because you're offering something of value. So, you know, it, it, it's very popular there and uh, makes sense. Although there is a specific process that 
you know, for a long time has been used to make sake. During World War II, there was actually a shortage of rice. And so glucose and sugar were directly added to sake. So a lot of the generally found sake that you'll find today, especially lower end or really cheap sake. And I say that, you know, sake is relatively inexpensive. It's made from rice. You know, rice is very plentiful. So it's already not that expensive. So if you're buying really cheap sake, it probably has added alcohol and glucose in it. And that's what makes it so cheap. You know, it's the difference between $20 and $10 kind of deal. I feel like it's also kind of good to mention that, you know, sake was often made in the winter because hot temperatures and humidity in the summer made the process really difficult. But now with modern refrigeration and temperature control techniques, you know, they're able to make it year round pretty easily. And that's why I'm able to enjoy it right now. Pause for a sip of alcohol. Ah. (laughs) But to get into a little bit about rice. Rice is also a cereal grain. I know. Everyone's shocked. We haven't been talking at all about cereal grains in this, you know, whole thing. But rice is also a cereal grain, and it's also part of the same grass family, the Poaceae family. Um, It's an annual plant that usually grows about 1.2 meters or about 4 feet in height. Um, So you get these kind of like long, reedy stalks, and then at the top of the stalk you'll get the flour and the flour part is kind of what we eat all the little rice it's interesting because roughly half of the world's population including much of east and southeast asia is wholly dependent on rice as a staple food more than 90% of the world's rice crop is grown in asia and principally in china, india, bangladesh and indonesia So, I mean, rice is just pretty important, and it's a good thing that it's so incredibly plentiful and, you know, relatively inexpensive. And part of the reason that rice, too, is so inexpensive is because rice loves water. And when we say loves water, even though I think rice patties and things are what we automatically think of when we think of growing rice. Rice doesn't actually need to be submerged in water to grow. It can grow in relatively moist soil. However, rice plants actually have this system of airways that allows it to carry oxygen from the tip of its leaves down to the roots. Very similar to the way aquatic plants survive in water. And it's because of this that they don't rot when they are submerged. And that made it a perfect plant for areas that experience these really heavy monsoon seasons where they had these big plots of land that would basically be useless for any other crop. 
but for rice, it's perfect. They're also able to pollinate by wind, so even though they're submerged for a lot of this time, it doesn't really affect, you know, any of their reproduction. They continue to grow the same way. And it's because of this that rice just was able to become this kind of, like, massively important plant to a lot of, you know, different cultures. I would say in Asia, but also, you know, around the world. I think, Definitely. yeah, I think rice is one of those things that it, it's also in its own right an incredibly resilient plant and, you know, very useful, gives a lot of nutrients, uh, you know, a miracle plant in a way. Compared to some of the other cereal grains that we've talked about, Rice is probably the most eaten by humans, so 95% of the world's rice crop is, in fact, eaten by humans. Uh, You know, it's not often given to... Livestock? Livestock, or, like, used for other purposes. Like, pretty much all of it is specifically for people to eat. And it's believed that rice was originally cultivated in the Chinese Yangtze Valley, uh, which has been confirmed by both archaeologists and molecular geneticists so far. Cool. And that type of rice was um, Oryza sativa. Uh, There's also different species of that rice that have, uh, you know, kind of come from that. But that's kind of like the OG superior one. Um, And there's also evidence even from around this same time where, you know, they believe this cultivated version of rice comes from that there were drinks made with rice. Um, There was specifically a drink made of rice, fruit and honey that was found at the... uh, I'm probably saying this wrong, like I say every other foreign word wrong, but Jiahu site in the Henan province. And, um, you know, I don't know, rice, fruit, and honey sounds pretty good to me. There actually was a uh, brand of beer made by Dogfish Head where they tried to kind of like replicate this same drink and I don't remember what they called it but you can look it up they did try to replicate it I think it might have been like a special edition thing I am curious kind of to know how successful it was though Uh, rice patties probably came out of these local people noticing that the rice plant didn't suffer in these monsoon rains you know, and I think that's just like a really important thing to remember when you think about rice as a crop is that it's it's able to take up just like a crazy amount of land that otherwise wouldn't even be able to be used, which is pretty cool because there's a lot of land when you're thinking about, you know, 
the grand scheme of things, the amount of available land that we have on Earth that is not usable for crops for one reason or another. So to be able to take advantage of that is pretty dope. It has been grown in other areas of the world, but it's most successful in Asia. I think partially because of, you know, its ability to grow well there, but also most varieties do still have some kind of like growing specifications and they do want to be in moist areas. That being said, you know, there are still over a hundred thousand varieties of rice. Uh, And that's not including wild rice. What? So (laughs) wild rice uh, is kind of like a different thing on its own. It's, it's a related grass species that's native to North America and Asia, but it isn't quite the same. And so when we're talking about these wines or these alcoholic beverages, uh, typically it's made with a few specialized types of rice in the Oriza sativa uh, group that has the species japonica which is the japanese version um and i think probably the most interesting thing about sake is just the process of making sake like when i read this it honestly blew my mind a little bit and so i'm kind of excited to share it with you (laughs) people in the west were you know like kind of making beer and fermenting with like yeast and things like that uh fermentation with rice is actually a much different process than other fermentations and so the very first thing they do with rice after it's harvested is that you have to polish the rice grain what does that mean which blew my mind like it means exactly what it sounds like you literally have to polish the rice grain and you have to do it without crushing the rice so challenge numero uno right uh there rice has this outside coating that's known as the bran and it's kind of like brownish in color And you need to polish the grain basically until you see the white in the middle so that it's like white rice. Traditionally, this polishing is done by running rice grains over rough stone over and over again until it's eventually stripped of its bran. Which, like, there's no other way to do it, really, uh, without crushing it. And you don't want to destroy the rice in the process. And this is a part of the process that still hasn't really changed over the years. 
So people used to do it, like by hand, just like run rice over a rock over and over and over again to try and get it polished and to hopefully get it as polished, you know, evenly as possible. But now they do it with machines, you know, you like, they have like a rock that they have like mechanically moving back and forth and then you, you know, like throw the rice over it. Sometimes they put this rice in this process and it can take up to four days of non-stop running against these stones for the rice to be properly polished. And so a good sake, and this uh, comes in kind of with, uh, I think, something Crystal will talk about a little bit later, but a good sake actually uses rice that has been polished half its original size. So for days, you know, um, so that you're really only getting that like very starchy middle part. Bad quality sake is made with, like, roughly polished rice, basically. Which is insane. Still got some bran. Yeah. Um, The variety of rice also does make a difference in sake. So you would want to think of the type of rice they use for each sake kind of the same way you think of each grape they use for a different wine. You know, each variety has a different flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, some popular varieties include the Yamada Nishiki, which is best known for, you know, producing very high-end sake. And it's considered like a very high-end rice variety that was cultivated in the 1930s from two older strains of traditional sake rice. There's also Omachi, which is prized for its wild herb and kind of like florally flavors. And Miyama Nishiki, which is a more cold tolerant rice variety and therefore like a little bit easier to mass produce. There's also some types that are grown um, on the West Coast in California. Hmm. One of them being the ubiquitous Calrose rice, um, which was developed there in 1948. So, I mean, these two parts of the process, the actual type of rice you're using and how polished, how much time you're willing to spend to literally polish your grain of rice, make a big difference. Um, So then... If you thought that part was crazy, polished rice is washed, soaked in water, and then steamed, right? Then that rice is left in this giant wooden room that is basically like a sauna. So it's really, really hot. It's very, very dry. Very dry. Super duper dry. Very very dry they spread the rice out along the ground in kind of like a thin layer and then they use a mold called koji also known as 
Asparagillus orzai. And they put that on there. So this mold was domesticated in China and then traveled to Japan. And it's actually used in a lot of the things that they do. Um, kind of similar to yeast in the West. Yeah, that's um, what it sounds like. Yeah, so you would use it, they use it to make like tofu and soy sauce and vinegar. Um, but basically they spread this koji on the rice in this very dry sauna. And so typically if you did that in a regular environment, like you just put this, you know, in your kitchen or something, you would get mold. Like you would get on moldy bread or something. But because the environment is so dry in this room, it forces the molds to actually go into the rice and start breaking it down in order to survive because they can't survive on moisture from anything else. This actually helps break down the starches that are in the rice to start the fermentation process. And so simultaneously, while this process is kind of beginning uh, in this sauna room, they also make a separate batch of rice, koji, water, and yeast. And they blend it together so that uh, the yeast can start eating the sugars that the uh, koji is turning into starch. And then they slowly add the koji that's been in the big sauna room or the rice that's been in the big sauna room with the koji into this mixture. And as they do that, the fermentation process continues. So the yeast is not dying at as quickly as of a rate uh, because it's slowly like eating up the sugars and slowly more and more is being added. And so that's actually why you find sake has a higher percentage of alcohol as well. Uh, this process continues, you know, for quite a while until they decide it's at the perfect spot, which is usually more up to the actual manufacturer of the sake and not necessarily like a industry standard. And then at that point, the mash is separated, filtered and pasteurized with heat to stop the fermentation process. So currently it's illegal to make sake at home in Japan uh, because, you know, it makes up a, considerable amount of the country's tax revenue go figure makes sense uh, and home brewing you know is difficult at best to tax it's also true that throughout the history of sake you know having hot sake wasn't necessarily a must but it was a way that was popularly used at one time to hide bad quality sake so like if your sake wasn't good quality, you were more likely to be able to tolerate it if it was warm than if it got cold. And so, you know, having high quality sake, you might not necessarily need it warm. Sometimes it's traditionally drank 
warm, but, you know, uh, there are plenty of them that can be chilled. And it's also true that some of the breweries, you know, as many as like hundreds of years ago that make these rice fermented beverages are still in existence today, you know, much like very old breweries or, you know, very old distilleries in Europe. Like there are very old distilleries in, you know, some of these Asian countries that have been making these rice beverages for years and years and years. There are also some other, you know, rice-based spirits, not just sake. Um, And a lot of times it depends on the country, you know, different countries have kind of the, the same sort of idea and make these things in the same way. You know, you can make a, you know, rice beer so you can use yeast and you know all the same things that you use to make beer with rice instead of barley um that's something that like budweiser does uh there are japanese beers that do it um sometimes rice is included in the mix of a mash for a beer one of the drinks that they also make in japan is called shochu which is a distilled drink that kind of starts with a sake-like mash and it's bottled at about 25% alcohol. So it can also be made from, you know, a mix of or anything like barley, sweet potatoes, buckwheat, and other ingredients. But really, rice is the most popular ingredient for this drink. And, you know, there are lots of drinks in other countries that are similar so you have like um the korean brand of sochu which it makes sense is soju and jinro which is the best known brand of soju actually outsells every other spirit brand in the world with the possible yeah. exception of chinese brands that don't expose their sales so Kind of applause for Jin Rub, man. Yeah, they're doing it. I mean, and honestly, like, that's what I'm drinking right now, and it's pretty freaking good. So nice. try some strawberry Jin Rub next time you're looking for, so you know, some soju. But I've never actually had flavored soju. I'm missing out. Yes, clearly. Um, But, you know, so... These kind of like rice-based beverages are inexpensive and very popular. There are some other types as well throughout Asia. And, you know, some of these include the Chinese Miju, the Filipino Tapoy, the Indian Sonti, Balinese Brem, and Tibetan Raski. Um, And there's also a kind of like sweeter Korean version of a rice drink that's called Gamju. Gamju? Um, and so there are lots of options for you if you would like to try a rice-based spirit. And I think that they're quite delightful. I recommend. I too. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty great. And, you know, it's something different, but surprisingly, it's it has a lot of similarities to the other, you know, like Western drinks. It was really just they were able to use this 
grass that they kind of had close, easy access to. Found a great way to work with the cycle of the land to make the most of it. Exactly. Use what they had. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think it's time for us to go to the bar. Let's go. Welcome, friends. I'm here to try and teach you a little bit more about sake. So it's got different flavors. They range from sweet to extremely dry. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the term dry, that's kind of like towards like a bitter note or like it makes your tongue like, you know, like kind of dry in itself. Um, And this is because of its many different categories, but also the temperature at which it's served. And you can make sake with other beverages if you like, but it's best either straight, cold, or hot. And each kind will have a temperature recommended for tasting. And they have like a whole rating labeling system, but just for a simple reference, if it's served cold, then uh, it's gonna be fresher, cleaner. You're gonna be able to enjoy the aroma close up. It also decreases off flavors that are like those alcohol burn sensation. If it's served hot, it's gonna have a stronger aroma and therefore flavor. It also brings out more sweetness, but at the same time, it becomes more dry, increasing that kind of, you know, typical alcohol burning sensation. And these temperatures have a very wide range. So at their hottest, it's around 130 degrees to serve. And at their coldest, it's like 41 degrees. Yeah, that's a big difference. Yes. So, you know, like almost ice cold and almost boiling hot. (laughs) They just push it to the limits. It's, there's a lot of flavor differences in one drink when you serve it at different temperatures. So that's also a fun thing to explore. And then there's also different ratings. So Dijin Joe, it's gonna be the highest quality. And then Jinjo is the next, and then Junmai is kind of in the middle. Uh, it doesn't have a set level, but it must be stated on the bottle that's typically under 40%. And that's the, if I'm understanding this correctly, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, that's the mash percentage, not the alcohol percentage, right? It's the amount that the grain is graded to. So that's like 40% of the grain has, it has been polished off. Right, so that's what we were talking about earlier was the 50% is the, it's down to half. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the Genshu is like full strength. So that one is up to 20% alcohol. Koshu is aged sake. That's pretty uncommon. And then Nama is unpasteurized. And Nagori is cloudy and unfiltered. It's the kind they would shake a little before serving. And hopefully that information will help you figure out what kind of sake you want to try first. Try different temperatures if you can. This is another one that has, you know, traditions around containers and serving. So if you are looking to invest in the experience as well, go ahead and look into those containers like the tokeries and the chokos. And... Also, I would recommend trying soju. That was, <laughs> I personally have had a lot of soju in my time, and yet I've never had a flavored one. So that is on my to-do list. 
I can't believe you've never had a flavored one. I just always mixed it with stuff. Yeah, no, this is good to drink, like, on its own. Mm-hmm. I've heard the peach one is very good. Yeah, that sounds lovely. <laughs> you know me, if it doesn't taste good, I won't drink it. <laughs> yes, you definitely have uh, pretty much every alcohol we've talked about. I'm always like, yeah, it's great. You should try it. And you're the one that's actually got, like, mm, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, not my fave. Mix it with this. <laughs> yep. So this one passes the test. So what are we going to talk about in our next episode? I think our next episode is going to have to be regular wine. Oh, man. We're going to learn so much about grapes. I know. <laughs> it's time. You know, we've talked a lot about it. There's been a lot of lead up throughout this series of like us getting to wine. Mm-hmm. And I think, honestly, after wine, we're probably on to a new, onto a new topic. New year, you new me. You know what I'm saying? Like we oh, obviously yeah. need to almost at our next, almost our next season finale. Exactly. <laughs> so, all right. Well, we've made it through sake. Isn't that process crazy, though? Like, blows my mind. I was like, what? They put it, they use mold to break it down. That's such a crazy yeah. idea. Like, who came up with that? I think, like many things, it was probably an accident. And they were like, wait, this works. <laughs> or a genius, one of the two. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for joining us on our latest episode of Plant Stories. This was Sake, and we look forward to you joining us next week for our season finale, Wine. Bye!